welcome to the second episode of the Substation podcast, Energy Economics Explained. I'm Emma. And I'm Tom. And today we're going to be talking about data in the transmission system. Um, so last week we gave an introduction to data. This week is part of a series, the second of our data series, where we're going to go into depth in different areas across the energy chain and talk about data. And today it's the turn of the transmission system. It's the turn of the transmission system. Uh, but first, we want to talk a little bit about what's going on. It's been yeah. a busy week. Pretty exciting so far. Uh, what we've got, we've got the uh, net zero strategy, the heat strategy. Um, we've got the government's response to the Committee on Climate Change carbon budget review. Uh, we're close to kicking off COP26. So it's all a go here. Um, my first impressions, I'm going to give you a machine gun approach on this. Please. <laughs> I would expect nothing less. <laughs> uh, we've got net zero strategy seems a bit underwhelming to me at, the f at, this, at this stage because it just seems like a bunch of stuff we've already seen. Question from the back. What is the net zero strategy? Who published it? I've not been doing any reading today, so you're going to have to educate me. So Bayes, the... Department for Business Energy and Industrial Strategy um, is publishing its net zero strategy, which is kind of like, I think it's the UK's contribution to how we'll meet our Paris climate change agreements and meet net zero by 2050, which is the target set out in legislation. So it's stuff like, what are we going to build? What capacity are we going to build? How are we going to heat our homes? What kind of energy are we going to use and move around and stuff like that? How is that different to the energy white paper and sort of some of the policy documents we had late last year, start of this year? Not very. <laughs> so as far as I can tell, it just builds on those. A lot of the stuff in there is just saying, and we did this, and we did this, and we said that, and we're going to publish this. But I think it's kind of like the, the big policy commitment kind of document it's you know this is this is this is as close to a plan as we are going to get so we had a 10 point plan which i guess was the initial back of the fag packet sort of sketch plans and this is now a more formal strategy yeah and formal for the given value of the word formal um as, as, again as formal as we're going to get until all the detail comes out which is is you know there's still a lot more detail that still that still needs to be hammered out, um, but it's. I mean, this is already like I think today there was uh, like seventeen hundred pages of stuff in total that's come out. So it's already a lot of work. Again, I'm only like you know we're only a couple of hours <laughs> into digesting it, but at this stage, you know it's the best. It's the best we got. See, as far as I could tell from the bits I looked up, which are about nuclear power, CCUS offshore wind, commitment to the 40 gigawatt target for offshore wind, let's get some SMRs in, small modular reactors, by 2030, CCUS kick, um, kicking off in the 2020s, 5 gigawatts of clean hydrogen by 2030, the stuff that was kind of already set out, set out in hydrogen strategies, hydrogen business model, CCUS announcements. A bit more exciting was the heat strategy. Um, so, you know, a third of our gas is burned at home, so this is pretty important right now when gas is like 200 pence a therm. Um, 
he's in general feels like one of those tough nuts to crack as well I mean it's quite easy in some senses to you know build a load of renewables and you know transmission connected storage etc but getting into people's homes and solving those kind of problems is a yeah. story what well, one of the great advantages uh, of many European nations is that uh, basically meant that they can install a bunch of heat networks and and They've got the like kind of. I'm not not sure it's a luxury, but you know they've got the they've got the great benefit. Of they've got more centralized heating systems. Hours are very dispersed because um, the housing stock in GB is pretty old. And so on heat networks, I remember there were kind of competition concerns because they're effectively little little small monopolies, right? And I know the CMA, the Competition and Market Authority in GB, were looking into whether they were getting a fair price, whether people were able to switch supplier, you know, if they were on one of these heat networks. Have those concerns now been alleviated or is that still ongoing? So I, I think that's still ongoing. The, one of the interesting things I haven't really sunk my teeth into yet that I want to is the um, they've issued a consultation on markets for low-carbon heat. So a market approach for that, not entirely sure exactly how that will pan out in terms of physical delivery because you know um maybe some of the best low carbon heat might be part of a heat network um where you can centrally produce it um or it or it could be you know a heat pump on your house the um the, i guess the headline thing that came out was the grant that they were talking about for heat pumps which is five thousand pounds per heat pump um which given that a heat pump probably costs about 10 to 15k at the moment doesn't sound like a lot, but uh, Octopus reckon they can bring it down to 6k in the next nine months and get it finally down to around three and a half. Question from the back, what is a heat pump? It's like a reverse fridge. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I heard that definition on Radio 4 this morning and I thought, oh, now I get it. <laughs> yeah. So you use work to compress or expand um air which has got you can gather the ambient heat from outside by basically using a reverse fridge you can turn that heat into higher grade heat and then you can heat your house with it um and you get like quite quite efficient but you need quite a big piece of kit so you need um you need all those coils like you have on the back of the fridge uh, and they need to then have air sucked through them you need to have a pump so that's where all the electricity comes in so for the amount of energy and work you put in you get a lot of heat out, but you need quite a big piece of kit, so they're not necessarily the cheapest thing right now. And what are they replacing? Gas boilers, effectively. Yeah, gas combi boilers, so very efficient, or if they're working, very efficient mm. burners of gas <laughs> that turn... Is your... My boiler is fixed now, yes. Okay. Uh, <laughs> uh, user error. Um, <laughs> uh, so... That, that was, uh, yeah, yeah, it was fine. It was a button. I didn't know who was there on the front of it. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, as I said, that we use a lot, of the, a lot of gas in our homes. We really need to decarbonise that. We can reduce our total energy uses by installing heat pumps, but it means switching, you know, we use a lot of energy for heating because it's a cold, wet, windy place with terrible housing stock, as previously mentioned. Um which means that, yeah, we, we need to use a lot of energy anyway. That's a lot of additional money spent on power networks to bring that power around. 
Um, I think the total amount of budget allocated to that 5k grant is enough to install about 90,000 heat pumps, which given that without grants, people are already installing about 30,000 a year, means that it's not necessarily the most ambitious uh, <laughs> ambitious target in the world. Um, but I guess if it encourages the market to develop and we can get, you know, as long as we avoid the boom and bust cycle like we had previously and we can generate a sustainable um, deployment, then that's... Are you referring, when you say boom and bust, are you referring to small-scale solar subsidies yeah. in GB? And, and the RHI as well when that came around. Yeah. The renewable heat incentive. What so that, that, that was a similar thing where you were paid a feed-in tariff for your low-carbon heat uh, resulted in a lot of, like... Uh, well, there, there were some heat pumps installed, but also biomass burners. Mm, and strange incentives for people in to burn... Certain of, parts of the yeah. country, yes. Okay, so we had the heat strategy, heat pumps, we had the net zero strategy, mm -hmm. we also had the treasury document. Yeah, so the treasury's review of... Um, the effect of moving to net zero. Gosh, that. Uh, so I think that yeah, there's a bit of finally the treasury has seen that the the cost of not doing stuff is more significant than the cost of doing stuff. Oh, that's the headline. I mean, it's not I necessarily can't... the headline, but there is a I, the last chart I saw in there mm -hmm. is basically a, a chart of like what happens to GDP if we don't spend. So at least someone's recognised okay. that. What, what was your headline? <laughs> I've not read it. I've seen on LinkedIn a few people, and I guess the sentiment from the news is that they're just talking about the costs and not focusing on the benefits enough. So I'm glad to hear that they are. I mean, yeah, but, but I, I guess they frame it in terms of the costs. There's a cost of not doing anything, and then there's a cost of doing something. Mm. The, the cost of yeah. not doing anything <laughs> is bigger than the cost of doing something, but the cost of doing something is still there. The other document then was the government response to the Climate Change Committee report. Yes, yeah, so um, the Climate Change Committee basically marked the homework of the government on its mm. plans to meet the fifth and sixth carbon budgets. Mm -hmm. And I a think. carbon budget is basically, we've said we're going to reduce carbon by such an amount and the budget's kind of set out incremental steps to doing so. Yes, capacity. exactly. Yeah. And, and the Committee on Climate Change has an obligation to basically say to the government whether or not their policies are putting them on track to miss or hit that target. And I think the last one that came out was pretty scathing, probably the, uh, the way of putting it. So um, the government's response was basically, well, we think now with our net zero strategy, we're on track to hit. That's, I think that's their term is we're on track to hit the sixth carbon budget. So not, there may be a little bit of wiggle room in that. Mm -hmm. Is there a bit of creative cre accounting in there as well? I mean, has COVID, lower demand, etc. had an impact? Uh, presumably. You can start from a lower baseline. Yeah, let's get into uh, transmission. We're, we're going to focus in on the transmission system. Yeah. And talk about some stuff there that's cool around this. So... Yeah. Um, the idea here is that we're, we're building on the theme of data and energy. So this is the first um, kind of detailed deep dive 
um, that we're going to try and do on how does data fit into the data and tech fit into the electricity and energy sector. And we thought we'd stop start at the, if not the beginning, at least the centre, because the idea is that um, since the since the nineteen fifties, you've had a, an inter integrated transmission system that's kind of been centrally planned with a big kind of command and control wing. And the idea then is that if you've got lots of large or a relatively small number, actually, of, of um, large power stations, they're easier to control, but you've always had to do kind of data and tech stuff because that's always been about command and control. How do you talk to um, the engineers at the, at the power station on the other end of the line? And how do you monitor the network and forecast what's going on on the network in order to have a decent idea of what you need to do, both in kind of, you know, long, what do I build timescales and short, oh dear, what do I turn on or off timescales? Well, yeah, it makes sense. You know, at that bigger transmission scale, we need more visibility, more control, uh, or well, historically have needed more visibility control compared to the other end of the scale, which I guess is, you know, domestic customers, which we'll touch on another another episode. Yeah. So, and, and this is kind of like the, the beating heart, the brain of the system. So, and it, it's always kind of been there. You, you know, this is the smartest part. And it and it makes sense to start here because this is the the bit with the longest history, right? So it's the bit that's always yeah. been the the um, men in white coats, and um, you know now increasingly not men in white coats. Uh, thank you know there's a much more diverse uh, engineering, <laughs> engineering cadre, but you know back in the day you could imagine um, the kind of people standing in front of large banks of computers that are you know, big spinning tapes and um, looking at big dials and stuff. That's that's the kind of thing that you've had. And they've always had people forecasting, you know, demand. Um, I think um, one of the great, I think, uh, greatest artifacts you'll find in the Museum of Science and Technology is a little kind of um, punch card diorama of electricity demand across the year. So it's these little card um, shapes that are, that are in the shape of the load profile of the day for the transmission system. And they're all colored by like how much electricity is consumed on the day. So it's this really um, beautiful looking card structure that's kind of undulates in a wave and changes in color. And it's a very analog way of picturing um, the demand shape. And, you know, that's the kind of artifact they would build to try and think about and plan for how the electricity system would operate. I think that's such a nice thing as well, because I think when we think about data and tech, we think, you know, very, very whizzy algorithms and, you know, all sorts of clever things, whereas actually really data is just information. And, you know, back in the day, that was on bits of card with, mm. with nice colours. Yeah. And, and if you can ever, I think you, if you like Google Science and Technology Museum load profile card, it, you, you'll find it. Uh, it looks really pretty. I, I recommend going to see it. And um, as somebody who builds like models for a lid for a living, actually they used to have a thing where like every everything's in software nowadays. But um, they used to be they would build a physical model of the system as in a tiny little circuit. Well, it's not tiny; it was huge. It took up a warehouse. 
Um, but that is what they used to model the system. So if they were thinking about, well, actually, what happens to power flows or reactive power, they had a little circuit um, to represent the entire transmission system, and they would put power onto it, and they'd take power off it, and it would, and they would build a physical model um, that replicated the impedances, etc., of the lines on the system. And there aren't any left; they they all got scrapped. Like it's. Um, I, I looked up what happened to the British one, and it was it was in rugby for a while, and then they, and someone got rid of it. So I, I believe it's gone. There's one left in America for an American system. But yeah, they're, they're all gone. Uh, people did used to think about this um, because control rooms um, have to forecast energy demand. They have to think about um, energy demand, energy generation, the flows of power across the system, and that requires a range of forecasts. Um, so they're forecasting in years ahead, days, weeks, you know, across a range of time scales, right up to real time. And then at the transmission level, this has been achieved. So all of this command and control has been achieved through a system called the balancing mechanism, which is in itself, in itself an evolution of the systems that were built in the 1980s, designed by the CEGB, the Central Electricity Generating Board. And effectively, there are a set of databases and communication systems that allow control room engineers to pick a resource and deliver against the system needs. So if, based on their forecasts, um, they think that there's uh, some power need in a certain part of the UK. They will look up through this database, which is basically a set of information about what power stations are on the system, the commercial and technical parameters of those power stations, as sent by the power stations um, in, in real time, in, in case of some of the data, system, uh, data uh, sets, and depict at certain times for others. And across all of this data, the balancing mechanism allows them to pick the cheapest solution to meet that requirement. And so, um, as you can imagine, this is, a, this is a, a very large data task. It involves lots of databases, lots of communication systems. So these are things like the sort and the SPICE database. Um, you've got EDL and EDT, electronic data logging and electronic data tagging, which are the kind of communications architecture that sit between participants and the national grid systems, and you've got to hook into those. And um, yeah, this is what's been delivering for us for at least 20 years. Um, and mm. it's an evolution of the systems that go back even further than that, at least to the beginning of the pool, uh, and probably earlier than that. And from National Grid's perspective, this is kind of both how it sees what's going on in the system, but then also how it controls what the system is doing or, well, how to resolve things that the system is doing in real time. Yeah, it's, it's integrated into that. So that there are more data feeds than just mm -hmm. what they're getting from participants. So they've also got their own forecasting data feeds that are flowing into this central command center, um, which is in Warwick. Uh, you it's difficult to get into uh, it's the one of the few places i've ever actually been asked to bring two forms of id um when when i was yeah. allowed in yeah I, I had to have uh, a driving license uh, and a passport just to, to prove who i was although strangely enough there's also a secret location nearby which every taxi driver knows where it is so when we got in a taxi to go there and said can you take us to national grid control center please they said uh the public one or the secret one and we were like, the, the public one, please. Please. <laughs> Let's not break any rules today. Um, I'm not sure. I'm sure I've been in there, but I don't, I can't drive. I've only got one form of ID. I wonder, did I just have to ask nicely? 
Yeah, I, I think you probably can if they come out. And, uh, well, did you go to Faraday House or did you go to Control Centre? Oh, hard to say at this stage. You also need, need to get to Faraday House as well, but I think you only need one piece. Um, I did almost not get into a Bayes event recently and actually possibly even had, did have to go home. Yeah, I don't did, know, was, I wasn't that the <laughs> yeah, that was exactly it. It was yeah. a training course for yeah. days. Somebody came out in the end, and they vouched for my uh, yeah. yeah, vouched I, for I, me. I was stuck, stuck holding the bag for a while inside, <laughs> <laughs> literally <Yeah>. and figuratively. <laughs> um, and yeah, if you if you ever get a chance to go, it's really it's really good. There's like a viewing platform where they can take you around and show you what's going on because obviously they won't let you inside. Um, because it's all it's NBC sealed as well. So if the if you ever get a chance to go to the control center, I highly recommend it. Um, there's a kind of viewing platform because they they don't let you in, obviously, because it's like a secure, safe operation environment. When I went, I think the viewing platform there because you go and there's a bit and they press a button and they reveal you know, the glass becomes mm. see-through and you can see, but that was broken. So I think we have to just, you know, put our hands over our eyes for the first little bit and just kind of imagine <laughs> that it wasn't our hands were doing the reveal. And the, um, I mean, the bit I really liked is when they were pointing out kind of, um, you know, there's the, there's the bank of control engineers at the front who are looking at different parts of the system because you don't have, like, one person isn't just looking after the whole system at once because there's different kind of geographical location stuff going on. So they, they've got the responsibility split out by location. Uh, and then there's like a person above them and then there's like a final person above them and everything kind of goes up in that chain. And But spreading out from them, there are also teams underneath the kind of control room engineers who are feeding the forecasts in. So there's like a forecasting section who are just off to the side. And, and then they've got a separate group of analysts in a separate part of the building and they funnel the, the forecasts through to the control engineers. And I thought that was mm. a really cool um, mm. setup. And the other thing they were really keen to show me was the cakes. Cakes? Yeah, because um, the pay for control room engineers who are asked to come in on overtime is quite good. So the convention, or well, I was informed, is that if you are asked to come in on overtime or outside of your normal shift pattern, you are uh, you buy the the control room some cakes like a platter of cakes and um and then there was a trolley just full of cakes <laughs> a platter and a trolley yeah. a cake <laughs> so that's the kind of context and history and what we've got right now so what do we actually need this kind of system to perform um because we have this essentially single system if you turn a light switch on in scotland it'll have an effect on the electricity system across the country so it'll affect someone in england as well so you've got this kind of total system as well as locational elements around individual assets across the system so um we need to know what's on the system so we're going to need asset registers um we also need then we talked a lot about forecasting we're going to need forecasting going on in this system um, so we're going to need lots of databases, uh, lots of data, and we're going to need the expertise in the um, systems to use that data in a, a manner that helps us do stuff. And um, the other thing we need is safe and secure operation 
so simulations we're going to need to be able to um, use those forecasts to kind of figure out what happens under certain scenarios because if you might end up with a solution that the market has presented that is actually unsafe for operating the system and then we need communications we need to talk to people who have made decisions and we then also need to take any information you know if we've discovered information from our forecasts and our asset registers and our simulations we then need to communicate that out and monitor the um the resulting instruction that has been given out so these are my kind of areas i think that the data area you know the data and the tech bit is really going to help the transmission system with mm. and those areas they cover both the short and the long term don't they so some of that data will be about you know network planning 10 years ahead plus plus some of it will be about operational minute by minute real-time situations aren't they yeah all of this can exist across a range of different time scales because yeah and mm. um, you, you will always need to communicate people from, from planning years out to planning seconds ahead we we need forecasts across those time scales we need asset registers across those timescales and we need simulations across those timescales. So um, the kind of, so what is, realistically, this is a monopoly. It's performed by one party in the middle of the, the system. And it kind of behooves us then to go and ask, well, what is Grid actually doing? Because we've got one entity here and um, currently they are called National Grid Electricity System Operator. Uh, they may not necessarily always be called that because um, the future system operator kind of consultation has happened. So uh, it's you know fairly likely that that might not be a national grid role in the future. But anyway, what are grid actually doing? What are they saying? You know, they've they've uh, published their Rio two ESO plan. Rio stands for revenues equals incentives plus innovation plus output and is effectively the price control mechanism used for monopolies in the uh, energy sector. The transmission one that uh, we're referring to here, Rio 2, uh, is Rio T2, transmission 2, and is covering the period 2021 to 2026 and effectively sets uh, how much money National Grid is allowed to recover from the people connected to its systems uh, so that it can invest uh, in the future. So uh, I guess one of the cool things that's been done recently is wider access. So if you've heard of the wider access API, that's the application programming interface. Um, it's basically a um, co-conduit for communications for um, the balancing mechanism. So it replicates some of the functions of EDT and EDL and allows generators to participate in the current systems without having to spend, uh, what is it, 20 to 30 grand um, on, a, on an EDL EDT system um, or sign up with a somebody who, who already has one. So um, it's a kind of web-based uh, interface that allows you to send data about your power station and receive data about your instructions, um, which basically means you don't have to have the dedicated com, li com lines that come with the EDT EDL systems, and therefore making it cheaper for smaller generators to participate. Um, I guess there's some current issues around the size of it. So if I recall correctly, you can't be greater than 100 megawatts, and you can't switch from EDL EDT to 
the wider access API. So there's no provision by which current generators or anyone who's, who has qualified with EDT EDL is able to switch over to the new wider access system. So that's um, that's that's one of the kind of things that you can't do. Um, another thing that's worth talking about would be the kind of machine learning um, processes that Grid has taken on. So Grid has done some things around machine learning with solar forecasts. They've got um, information from solar developers. They've brought in a lot of data sets. They've partnered with Sheffield. Um, God, what are they? Sheffield Solar, is that their name? And they're adding a bit, they've added more sophistication and granularity to these forecasts. And they've also said that they would like to use more machine learning because there's quite a lot of um, extra steps that they could be taking in their forecasting, for, especially for things like demand. It's one of the big ones and um, that they could apply more of this sophisticated new techniques. Um, they could also look at other areas of machine learning around outages or um planning for network operation so that's in the scope of, of their kind of rio2 plans another area that um, i would expect to see money being spent on um which i think they have said they would do but i, I haven't heard any kind of concrete plans yet is a, a digital twin so um this has actually been deployed in sweden i think but um you have basically a digital simulation of the the real system Along, running alongside the real system so that you can actually see um, what's, hap what's happening, what should have happened um, or what could happen based on um, what happens, you know, what changes that you make to this digital system. So it's got all of the transformers and the um, power lines and the generators simulated to a certain degree of accuracy. And you tweaking by tweaking um, the variables that go into it, you can see what happens. And then you can plan for how um, how the, you might operate the system under those conditions. Um, and then other things that we could have uh, asset registers. So under the current system, the quantum of participation in National Grid's um, balancing mechanism is a balancing mechanism unit. So every meter has to be part of the balancing mechanism unit. There's this huge set of data about which meters are associated with what BMU and what that meter can do and where that meter should actually be located. And the kind of meter allocation rules that we've done to ascribe one meter to another meter so that they can be netted off or that they can be moved by calculation to the location they're supposed to be in. And there's all of this sort of stuff that sits together. And is there a way to have those um, databases done in a more sensible way or more open or easier to access um, or less fragmented way for for, for issue? Because you've got the, there's a national grid um, kind of system and there's an Alexon system for settlement. And then you've got other things being monitored by other code bodies. Is there a way to just bring this all together? Don't think that's on anyone's plan, planning radar, but I, Definitely think it should be. Um, and there is an elephant in the room who perhaps those of us who have been around a bit longer will recognize the name of, um, which is EBS or electric Electricity Balancing System. And this was a uh, IT program started by National Grid in oh, like 2007, eight, something that far back. Um, 
And the intention here was to bring algorithmic dispatch into the balancing mechanism through a range of timescales. And, um, and what I mean by that is that you would cut the human out of the loop. So at the moment, if there is a reserve replacement need or a manual reserve um, needs to be activated, the, there is a human in the loop who is deciding, okay, our systems say we need this done. I will go into the balancing mechanism system, find the action that needs that is best suited to doing that, and then tell the balancing mechanism to dispatch that action. So there's a human being sitting in the loop making some of those decisions. EBS, the idea was that across a range of timescales, a lot of that would be automated, well, basically all of it would be automated. And it only ever managed to successfully automate the long-term kind of timescale, four plus hours. And then when they activated the short-term under four hour time system and ran it in parallel to the control room, they found that there were a bunch of actions that they couldn't explain why the algorithm was doing. And ultimately that bit was dropped. I think the intention now is to move into having, to have another go basically. Um, well, I was wondering as you were speaking through that, like why is this function a natural, a natural monopoly? Why is National Grid the only one that can do it? So this is, this is a good question for kind of, you know, what is the future? What can, you know, what can data and technology do? Is there a future where we can create a market where people can react or people, probably not people, we're talking realistically algorithms, um, can react real time to situations on the system and in the balance of electricity? Is there a, is there a system that, uh, or a market that is out there that can second by second trade watts and not watt hours? Because mm. that's what we at the, need. Mm. And, and reactive power and, and all, the other, all the other stuff. Because mm. at, at the moment, so you're saying, well, I guess the system, because it's electricity, because of real-time balancing requirements, we need that centralised role for National Grid there's always going to be that natural monopoly yeah, in so place. Scheduling and operations are very important where there is no effective storage. And um, I mean, was it the, the, the supermarkets operate on just in time delivery. And if they don't deliver quite on time, you get empty shelves. Mm. Well, the electricity system operates on just on time delivery, but if you don't deliver, there's a blackout and we end up, yeah, there's the, it, it is a scheduling conflict interest. How do you, um, how do you send signals to people to do the right thing? Um, is, is the data and technology there to actually signal this stuff in real time? Because if it isn't, you need to fall back on somebody who has the command and control architecture to take over at some point. Now, I've often argued that you could move that point back further than an hour because at the moment it's an hour this point of control switching over from the market to the system operator is known in industry as gate closure could you move it back to 30 minutes 20 minutes 10 minutes 50 yeah, five minutes so that you know the market can trade all the way up to five minutes and then grid can take over after that because now there's so much more that, you know, this whole system, it's designed 20 years ago when people were communicating over dedicated comms lines and using um, spreadsheets to settle stuff. The, the, the world is different. Um, 
And I suppose when it comes to things like scheduling dispatch, you know, you talked about the balancing mechanism um, and all the data that generators and other assets need to provide with National Grid so they can support real-time operation. It's probably quite interesting that those requirements aren't the same for all assets. So depending on your size, whether you're licensed, whether you're covered by certain restrictions, you may or may not have those same requirements to provide that same level of detail. Well, to provide that same level of data to National Grid. There's a bit of a, an unlevel playing field there in terms of who can react in real time, potentially who has the freedom and flexibility to do that versus those larger assets who definitely need to give that visibility to National Grid and, and also let National Grid control them. Yeah, because some power stations are so big that if they do something, it has a, a big impact on the system and some are so small. That was the intention, right? That mm. we never needed to worry about the tiny generators in the distribution system because we mm -hmm. had these big generators in the transmission system who would just make up for for the problem um, if, there was, if there was a problem. Now, with those guys closing and the smaller stuff becoming ever more and more important, I think the, the realisation is clear that there can't be this two-speed access to the market. So I think the direction from government is fairly clear in my opinion is that they don't like they don't like the idea that grid can't see everything because you've got the, that capacity market consultation and the um, license exemption uh, consultation. So I think the the or in my opinion the the signal is clear that we'll have some standards that'll apply to everybody equally. Mm. Um, well, I mean, it's interesting, you obviously talked about algorithms earlier, we've talked about how in the wholesale market, you know, typically we've been dealing with larger assets, so we've needed more visibility, more ability to control, um, and this is something that we'll touch on in a, in a future episode, but I suppose it's interesting in future that some of those large assets, or virtual assets, could come from the demand side in future rather than just generating assets. So you could have, you know, a coordinated EV fleet providing the same capacity as a, as a small CCGT. So it's, you know, <laughs> maybe not a small CCGT, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, like, you know, we're, we're trying to close things up, I guess, on the generation side um, and, you know, tighten up things around licensing, as you mentioned, and kind of level that playing field. But meanwhile, on the, on the retail side, you know, things are also happening and, and the lines are starting to blur a little bit. I mean, there's no reason that a factory process or, um, or like, as you say, the collective will of thousands of electric vehicles can't also mm. provide flexibility. Um, the, yeah, I guess the issue there is how do you command and coordinate that huge disparate um, conglomeration of demand? Well, actually, maybe the ESO doesn't need to have individual access as long as they've got someone at the top of that chain, you know, let the market find out how to control all of that stuff. And as long as you provide the right incentives and um, assessment procedure to prove that they, you know, can actually do what they say they can do, um, then you could use them to, to provide that service. It's then up to that um, asset. Uh, I mean, realistically, they're going to need decent metering. Um, because, you know, we can't just trust the company it says to do what it say it will do. Again, mm. it's one system that needs instantaneous balancing. 
you can't take the risk that even, yeah, that say a, a hefty percentage doesn't deliver because you'll just have to turn mm. somebody else on who would be more expensive. I says, what are the limitations do we have on the transmission level? So what other things can National Grid not see or can we as a system or market not see? For example, they can only see the commercial impacts of their decision on generators. So they can't see what the commercial impact is on the demand side. So they don't know what the demand side is willing to accept from a, a pricing point of view. So for example, if there are some customers who are willing to be disconnected because they've got their own backup power uh, cheaper than turning a generator on, perhaps they should be disconnected before we spend a bunch of money on turning on some generators. Um, there's there's a whole, I, I, you mentioned that there's, there's generators that we just can't even see at all because they're not signed up. Um, so I was going to say, like, can we get to a world where transmission level data or national grid data is really fully open? Because at the moment, I guess, national grid holds a lot of it and there's quite strict rules around how the data is put together and how it's published. But is, is that kind of the next phase, is truly open data? Yes, yeah, so there, there's going to be... So, for example, the open data principle is now in Alexon. It'll probably come to grid, but um, what does it mean? What does the open principle actually mean, or open data mean? It means that unless there is um, a valid reason, then all data should be presumed open and accessible. And essentially, if you request a set of data, you should be able to access it either digitally or um, manually. Uh, <laughs> CD-ROM. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I, 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 yeah. I, I, I guess when I mean manually, I mean like downloading a CSV from a website yourself. Mm. Um, whereas when I mean digitally, I, I mean like uh, using an API to access it automatically um, via machine. So I, guess, so I guess now there's probably a lot of data that is around and is available, and but it's not presumed to be open. It's not made open unless there's a, there's a direct reason to do so yeah so f some of the examples there might be um there's a lot of meter data about who has a meter and where a meter is and all that sort of stuff that mm. might i mean depending on exactly how you apply the open principle because you uh, i think the essentially you've got to be gdpr compliant so no data that could help identify an individual or their actions so maybe the meter which includes data, an mpan yeah so i think mpan plus consumption data or at least Maybe not MPAN by itself, but MPAN plus consumption data does count as personal data. Yeah, and in some cases, commercial data. So, for example, the um, to what extent the imbalance performance of different suppliers might be made available. By imbalance performance, we mean the difference between the metered volumes, what the supplier or generator actually did, and the contracted volume, what they said they would do or what they bought ahead of time. So the imbalance performance is basically the difference between the two, how well they were forecasted or hedged against their forward position. Because theoretically, you've always been able to buy that information if you wanted to. Um, so anybody can go and buy that information, but they would have had to spend money to do so. 
Well, there's, yeah, there's probably different levels of openness, isn't there? There's like, yeah, you have to be on a portal versus you have to pay to get it versus maybe you just have to be very astute. Yeah. And, and then you've got um, like actual possible national security level data. So is a digital twin geotagged of the system, electricity system, a national security risk or not? And that's the really interesting thing about data, isn't it? Because it's almost like, I don't know if it's a spectrum or like a slippery slope, but, you know, you can quite easily argue that such and such data is already available. And, you know, we're, we're just making it even more accessible on, you know, this different platform or digital twin. But there's almost a tipping point, isn't there, when the information becomes too accessible, too visible, and, there's an and effect potentially on, is a risk. Yeah, and there's an effect on competition there as well. Um because if you're giving so much information away about a generator, are you affecting their competitive position? Does every single piece of information about that generator need to be open? Um, I mean, probably, I don't, I think that there probably are situations where um, commercial parameters might not be worth sharing out, uh, but in most situations but, about technical data for stuff on the public system that probably should be shared. Yeah, I mean, it depends on the market, right? So when we're talking about balancing market timeframes or flexibility markets, it feels like more openness is better. But obviously nobody's talking about, you know, bilateral contracts, those kind of details being open. And on that characteristically abrupt note, we end this episode of the Substation Podcast. Thank you for listening. And if you'd like to get in touch, drop us an email at the substationpodcast at gmail.com or follow us on Twitter.